Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. Today I have as a guest, David Hawkinson, and he is the second generation farmer at Incarnation Washington at Jubilee Farm. He's 36, has been married for 11 years, has three kids, and lives in the same house he grew up in. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So give us a little bit of an overview of your farm. You were doing that before we, we started the podcast. You guys do so much. Well, um, yeah, you know, we, we do a fair amount. Um, we, our main thing is uh, doing a vegetable CSA. I guess technically there's fruit and berries and grain involved, but um, mostly it's vegetables. Uh, so we do a summer session that goes from June through October. And then we do a, a fall C, uh, CSA session and winter and spring as well. Um, so, uh, we also do a, you pick pumpkin patch in October with like kids tours, mm-hmm. a lot of preschools and kindergartens and stuff like that. I do a lot of wagon rides. That's fun. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, we do a beef herd. You know, we got about, we, we have about 60 to 70 animals at any given time. And then, um, and then we do some pigs, sheep and layers. We kind of do a little bit, of all the animals. Some years we do turkeys. I'm hoping to do those again. Those are fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a uh, little bit of everything. Absolutely. So talk to us about the history of the farm. You said you're second generation. So did your father start it? Yeah. So my mom and dad bought the place in 1989. Um, my uh, with with not a lot of experience in farming. Actually, no experience in farming. But see, my dad was 38 at the time, and he was a commercial fisherman in Alaska catching uh, sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay, and okay. was also taught at a community college as well so anyway they bought this farm and um yeah so tried a lot of different things tried beef cows did uh my dad did corn and uh, uh you know like sweet corn and sold it to grocery stores and he found out a lot of ways to not make money and uh, kind of narrowed it down and then eventually went to a, a conference and um uh down in california and they talked about the csa model um and uh, I didn't know any of this at the time because I was like 10. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was just a weekend at grandma's for me. But he was down at the conference changing the farm. And um, yeah, so they decided they would try the CSA model. I think we were the second CSA in Washington. Now there's, um, you know, obviously a lot more just on our street. So uh, it's been, you know, we've been doing this for about, I don't know, 25, 26 years doing the CSA, 95 yeah. when we started. Um yeah, radio math, and I'm not good at it. But um, in any case, uh, yeah, so that's that's where they got started on the CSA, and um, that was kind of the main driver. And then we kind of did pumpkin patch as well, because there's, um, we, you know, one of the things that makes, uh, uh, that kind of is about our farm is that we're pretty close to the city, uh, yes. especially like right off I-90, you know, we like we're right by a big, you know, metropolitan area, Seattle, Bellevue, Tacoma area. So, you know, a lot of you pick pumpkin people come out and they, they want that, you know, um, that, uh, that little touch in the country, drive out to the country, get their pumpkin, come back, 
And yes. uh, so that ends up being a big deal. And so we, we, you know, a lot of our members were, were, were pumpkin pickers at one point and they kind of got to see that we were a, 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 a vegetable farm primarily and kind of did you pick pumpkins as a, an additional thing. Um, so yeah, yeah that's kind of the, the history of the farm. And then a few years ago, my, my wife and I bought it from my dad and um, he had farmed for a long time. And, um, and I had, uh, I had been managing it for a while and then we decided to buy it. And uh, it, you know, it, I don't know, I guess it's worked out all right. Yeah. We bought so, it in 2019, right at the very beginning of 2019. So. Gotcha. How many acres is the farm overall? The farm right now is about 225 acres. Okay. Gotcha. So a lot of that, you know, we're in a floodplain, which, which it kind of makes it unique. We, and it's not just in a plain. I mean, we regularly flood my road. This flood season has been closed for 30 days. So not, wow. consecutive days, but there's 30 total days at least or more in which, um, you know, the road was closed. So that doesn't necessarily mean you can't technically get through, but you know, like services don't come through. So like, you know, the postal service doesn't come, trash doesn't come, that that kind of stuff. The school bus doesn't come when that's really important. So yes. After COVID-19 and my kids took yeah, 18 months off of school. I mean, they were homeschooled. We did our best. Yeah. I, I said, if school is on, I will get them to it. So we rowboated out and I park <laughs> a truck on the high ground ahead of time and, and we get there. So that's just yeah. something they've been to accept. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the so the floodplain, you know, it doesn't mean all that acreage is farmable. A lot of that um, acreage is some places I've never even been to on the farm, and I grew up here, so um, yeah. it's just it's just too swampy to kind of get to, or or just really overgrown in a lot of areas, areas that don't dry out until the summer, and you know don't really have any farming value. But you know, there's a lot of nature on the farm, which is great. You know, a lot of a lot of animals. Yeah. That's awesome. How many acres of like uh, vegetable slash pumpkin production do you do or like cropping? Cropping? Um, oh man, I thought I knew you were going to ask that question. It varies a little bit. Uh, um, you know, uh, so we might do six to eight, maybe nine acres of pumpkins a year. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we do a fair amount of winter squash too. I love getting a wagon and piling it high with like big beautiful cinderella pumpkins when people come in from the city they see that and you know with the blue hubbards and yes you know, it's really fun to do it's part of the whole thing we give a lot of squash out in our in our summer and, and fall csas um but uh, and a lot of people go you pick it too so we do a few acres of that too and then um usually like a an acre of uh sweet corn or you know give or take maybe an acre of potatoes an acre of alliums and I'm a big fan of carrots, carrots and beets. That's yep. what I harvested a lot as a kid. So I got kind of emotionally attached to those ones. Um, yeah. a, lot of, a couple acres, two, three acres of brassicas. So like, uh, you know, all the, well, you know, all the brassicas. I don't got to explain that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we do some U-pick too. So we got like strawberries and we do usually do beans and peas. A lot of things that are kind of time consuming to pick, but are a lot of fun for people to come out and pick small quantities. Like strawberry picking is really fun if you're getting two pints with your kids. Correct. Them okay yeah. can be very time consuming. That's kind of the expensive end of, of strawberries, at least, at least from my experience. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about the U-Pick because actually this coming season is our first year doing a U-Pick and I'm a little apprehensive. So I need to know all the details. Oh man, U-Pick you you pick is great. Here's the secret. Short rows. Don't make your low, rows long. I love long rows because I love driving the tractor. Yes. Yep. But, <laughs> but people don't want to walk down a long row. So they'll hammer the front half of your bean crop and they won't yes. touch 
And, and that totally makes sense. And you know what? Don't fight it. So make your row short. That's my biggest piece of advice. That's what okay. I turned to recently. <laughs> but besides yes. that, I mean, it's, you know, growing for you pick you want, I mean, it's where the customer kind of interfaces with your farm. So we're pretty public. Like our members mostly come out. So yes. about, I would say about 80, 80% of them are, are pickup and then about 20% are delivery. So it's where they inter interface with the farm. So you want to keep, want to keep it weed, weed, uh, weed free. I mean, yep. we're never weed free. We're never weed free, but you know, I can walk through a few weeds to harvest cabbages, but I don't want them to wade through weeds to get peas or beans. So that's kind of that. Um, it became kind of a challenge for us to kind of determine for our delivery folks, like where the value was, like how much of the cost is you pick. So we decided just to make uh, you pick kind of gratis. Is that the right word? Gratis? Yes. Yep. Yep. Or uh, compliment, complimentary. We do like we do flowers, like you cut flowers. People come by and get those and like herbs. So like your, uh, you know, like uh, basil and parsley and cilantro. And then, and then usually like a bigger one, like peas and beans and then strawberries. And what else do we do? You pick. Yeah. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get pickling cucumbers to be a you pick item because not everybody wants them, but some people love them. So exactly. like, yeah, you pick then like people self-select and then you're not harvesting a bunch that go bad because not everybody wanted them, but you let some people take more than they want. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of how we approach you pick, make a nice sign so everybody knows because nobody wants to ask like what's the difference between parsley and basil. You know, it's embarrassing if you don't know. And, yep. and so you don't want people to feel dumb. Um, <laughs> I got a lot of experience with that, you know, so I know what that's like. I want things. It's nice when you know like what's going on. Um, so, yeah, so trying to get signs. We're not perfect at that, but we're trying to get better. Okay. So then when the, it, you have them pick strawberries into pints, just the, the, the fiber pints. Yeah. So we, yeah, we usually get those old fiber pints and people are usually pretty good about, you know, reusing and that kind of thing. Like they bring their own, sometimes people just bring their own. So yeah, we used to kind of do scales. You know, the question is, do you do it by weight? Do you do it by volume, you know, and then like monitoring and we've kind of gone the approach of no monitoring. Um, we just kind of do it on, we, one time, a long time ago, my dad uh, caught somebody back in their car up to the raspberry patch and loading their trunk. But I mean, for the most part, <laughs> you know, people are out here because they want to be and they, and they, you know, they generally like the farm. They're not like uh, yeah. trying to pull one over. I mean, every once in a while you get people who like take pumpkins out of the patch, walk straight to their cars and drive away and never intend to pay. But if you install security guards, it makes it feel a little bit less fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So we, we give people directions. We say, hey, two pints and we provide those little cardboard pints and and or a bag if it's if it's like a bean, you know, we give them little bags to put them in. You know, people are usually pretty conscious about plastic. So some, a lot of times they'll bring their own reusable bags and that kind of thing. So that, that works out pretty well. And for the most part, you know, um, no, no problems. Mostly that's a real positive. People really like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And some people never do the U pick either. So they just don't have the time or they don't care or, you know, whatever. That's fine. It's just there if you want it and you're not missing out of your value if, if you don't do it. Yes. Gotcha. You don't really factor that in. So yeah, right, yeah, right. I got that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, we are within, within 40 minutes of us as a million people. So we really want to scale that. I'm just like, I pulled you up on the map and I'm just trying to figure out exactly how far you are from, you know, these big cities. They're exactly the same. Yeah. So yeah. there's some of the bigger neighborhoods in Seattle, like, uh, you know, Ballard or Queen Anne, or um, even West Seattle, we have people coming out for, even though that 
well, this is kind of local stuff, but that big bridge is out and they got to take a side bridge. Anyway, yep, you know, yep. like it's drivable. Once you get on 990, I mean, I love being here. It's perfect for me because I grew up in the country. I get that country farm life. And then if I want to go see a Mariners game, then yep. I can be there in half an hour. So like it's it's real, real easy drive to get out in and out. Um, so we're, it's very convenient that way as far as like the, yeah, yeah. You see yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Talk to me a little bit about your climate, because obviously a lot of people talk about how the north is just so wet up there, but your crops look great. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what the weather is like and then how you manage disease. Right. So, um, yeah, it gets really wet in for a large portion of the year. Like I say, we're a floodplain and we flood regularly. So um, but that that is usually confined to the winter. So technically, yeah. our, our flood season starts in October and goes through April. So okay. we've had big floods at any time during there. And so it kind of gives us, you know, uh, when a flood water comes through in October, uh, that can kind of end a lot of our harvesting. And there's kind of ways to mitigate and harvest ahead of time because, you know, the floods come and usually get 48 hours of notice or at least yeah. 24 pretty good notice. So you can go out and harvest like crazy if you need to. But um, yeah, uh, you know, the wetness comes then and then it's, and then everything is wet all the time. And I don't know what it's like in other places because I'm such a hobbit. I've never left my little home. Um, <laughs> I lived in the, I lived in the city for a few years when I was, uh, in my, in my, uh, youth, but, uh, um, I've never like worked on another farm. So yeah. I don't really know, but it's, it's wet every day. So I wear boots every day just cause there's, you know, there's always dew on the yep. ground. I tell people, you know, sometimes we'll have a new person come work and I say, I know you got those hiking shoes from REI and they are probably great and they're probably pricey and don't ruin them here because it's going to be muddy. And so, yeah, we, it rains a lot, but the summers themselves, we can have long dry spells. I mean, last summer with, we had like a crazy summer with like that heat dome that yep. kind of made yep. new. that was crazy. Like multiple days over 110 in Sheesh. a row. Like, never experienced that in my life. I mean, we were hanging sheets off our, off our like uh, gutters to kind of block the sun from hitting the house. Cause my house has all day sun exposure yeah. and, no trees around. And, and because we're in a floodplain, our house is elevated up in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. But in any case, it was crazy hot. And uh, you know, and, and all the moisture that had happened during the spring got sucked out of the ground. So we were playing catch up most of the summer, but generally speaking, we can have, we, it's not unusual to have a month or two without any rain. So yep. the summer ends up being relatively dry, which is great. I always say Absolutely. I'd rather yeah. because you can make it rain and we irrigate um, mostly overhead, some drip tape, obviously in that, in the houses and, and, and tunnels and stuff, we, we do drip tape, but um the uh yeah so you know uh as far as moisture disease yeah i mean especially in september fall uh and 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 uh, october if you're you know you, you kind of got to say goodbye to the to the broccoli things that kind of catch water harvest early you know like it's better to take a head that's small and tight than wait you know three four days as it starts to loosen up and then starts getting black spots you know and that will happen yes. almost immediately because they they never ever get dry basically october 1st on so it's better to harvest so there's like little strategies and you know yeah. things to do but um we we plant probably a little bit further apart or like should i say less condensed we do a yep. five foot bed and we do 26 inches apart oh um, wow yep so, so that's what we do for, for like all of our brassicas. We used to do a three bed system. So things were a little bit more touching and now we've kind of just gone standard. Everything is either in two rows or one row. So potatoes and corn or no potatoes and pumpkins and squash and stuff 
one row, everything else in two row, and we all do it 26 inches apart. And then for planting, we dibble every nine inches. So it's either every hole or like kohlrabi, every other hole for cabbage, you know, get kind of a system. So we keep it pretty simple as far as our planting. And that, that was a decision we made, gosh, probably seven, eight years ago. And we never looked back. It was really nice to kind of set everything up more standard. Yeah. So we are, you know, when it comes to cultivation and that kind of thing. So like carrots, two rows then per bed? Yeah. 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 That, that kind of hurts when it comes to space because three beds is so nice. But yeah, um, two, two beds, there are two rows. You know, I'll cheat sometimes if, if I know I'm not going to cultivate something like mustards or uh, arugula or something. I'm going to put the I'm going to put row cover on and just walk away from. I'll I'll go up and down twice with the cedar, so I'll hit it. You know, we'll do four rows, and I'll just try to steer close. That's yes. not exact, <laughs> but you yeah, know, yeah. I'll put, it, put it right next to each other and then uh, and then call it good. So I don't want to waste too much space, but um, uh, yeah. So yeah, the carrots, beets, parsnips, you know. Wait, I don't. I'm the jury's kind of out on on rutabaga. I, I think I might try transplanting some of them next year. I just haven't had good luck. I've either been getting them too close together, or they haven't been germinating well enough. Yeah, so I, I might try to switch that up a little bit. But generally speaking, yeah, those kinds of crops, uh, just two rows all the way down, and yeah, yeah, transplanting rutabagas works great because then every single one's a nice big four exactly. inch. I'm tired yeah. of them being papered. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So on your carrots, what varieties are you doing? Oh man, you know Johnny switched me up this year. I was I was used uh, usually the yah yahs. That is that how you say it? I'm not yep. great with uh-huh. them, so just just correct me. Don't worry about hurting my feelings. If I say something wrong, just shout it out. Uh, I think we're doing uh, so we're doing yah yahs as a as an early one. Um, the bolero, I think, yep. uh, as, the, as the storage or later one, and then I think romance is the name of the one we're doing this year. And correct. I don't know exclusively from Johnny's, but um, I find you know like not to do a commercial for them or anything, but generally speaking, they have what you need. So yes. a local company, I usually, or Osborne, I guess they're yep. not just, they sell everywhere, but they, they got a place up an hour north of me. So I buy a lot of my bigger seeds there. And uh, right. I usually, I usually uh, get the kids out of the house for a little while, have them drive with me up in the truck to go pick seeds up. And it's like an adventure. And then my wife can do the books. So <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all begrudgingly, you know, give, Johnny's a pre- predominant amount of the money we make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, and you know, like, uh, I, you know, they, they're a good company. Yeah. I don't it's great. Them. Yeah. I mean, the, the order system's fabulous. The support is fabulous. The quality of the seed. I'm b- terrible at like record keeping. So like, if I got to call them like, next year and be like, Oh, what, ha- what, what did I get last year? Like they usually know. And yeah, you know, they're pretty responsive. Like if you call their customer support, um, you know, they, they generally answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's my commercial for Johnny's. Uh, so yeah. 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 Randy, I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I think I would have to get a free hat one year. That was pretty cool. Yes. Well, I've, I've got to, I'm going to share this little tidbit and then every, then they're going to be real mad at me. But if in like the, if you order online in the special comment section, you say, Hey, throw me a free knife. 90% of the time they will. Really? Oh yeah. I I think I got a knife from them. Yeah. I got a knife and a hat and that's when they had somebody come out and like, you know, walk around and talk to me and yeah, I I showed them the farm. I think they were just trying to make that touch, you know, that, that, that personal touch with the rep that was in our area. That was nice. 
2012 was the first year that Salanova, well, Salanova wasn't available to 2013, but 2012, our farm was one of the three farms in the Northeast that did trials for Johnny's and Salanova. Oh, well, thank you. I love that kind. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. It was my neighbor who got me onto it. My neighbor, my neighbor, um, uh, Matt Draganian and his wife, Deanna, um, they worked for my dad for a year and then he sold them a parcel Oh, very and cool. they started farming and um, they started doing only sell Salanova um, and they did a lot of farmers markets. That was kind of, okay. their, that was, yep. they, did farmers markets. they did a CSA for a while and then they just stuck to the farmers market. But yeah, they were big fans of Salanova and they're like, that's all we do. And I was yeah. like, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but I, I don't mind trying what they did. And then I, I'm pretty much doing the same thing now. I still do a few other things like a few romains and, you know, a yep. few other you know, spring spring lettuces, but I find the the Salanova to to handle uh, handle you know kind of odd heat. You know, like like I say, we're so cool most of the time. It's the variation in temperature. We we'll get a little hot spell here and there, and um, but I find that stuff doesn't you know holds up in the fields all right. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, the new Batavian, the red Batavian, and the green Batavian Salanovas. Oh my gosh, those are game changers. Yeah. Unfortunately, the red is not available till like July. Hmm. Well, I, one thing I always, I love lettuce as a, as a crop because, and I've kind of gotten away from cutting lettuce. Um, my, my, I got a, my, our CSA manager, she always, um, I like planting loose, loose cut greens because I usually do the planting side of thing and I'm not as involved yep. in the harvest. <laughs> and, you know, there's only so much you can ask people to bag up and that sort of thing. So a, le a lettuce you can cut ahead of and put on a tray, I can knock that out really fast. Um, I like things that people know how know what to do with. Everybody knows what yep. to do with lettuce. And I like something that's really pretty. So a lot of the Salanovas with the kind of mix of green and red, oh, it's great. And then yeah. you can harvest it real quick. And the turnaround's not that much. You can kind of turn and burn the beds. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I love that kind of lettuce. It's It's great. It's great. Yeah. So let's move a little bit to your, uh, the animal side, because you have cows and yep. those are beef cows. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly Angus. Okay. We've had black Angus and red Angus, and we had a few shorthorn there for a while, but they've slowly kind of gotten removed over time. Um, cause we just kind of stick with Angus and, and that's what tends to be available. And, you know, if everybody's doing a kind of cow, there's probably a reason. Usually there's kind of wisdom in the crowd, not always, but, but yep. often. And so, yeah, they tend to be, um, they tend to be easygoing. They, they, they don't have problems calving and, um, yeah, they just seem to do well. They just, they just seem like low anxiety. We're in a floodplain. So for the winter and fall and really like half or even a little bit more than half the year, we have them in a barn and okay. we're, um, we're doing a, a big project. And this is on my brain a lot because this is what I do a lot in the winter um, is, uh, is, is bedding and feeding and scraping and cleaning and making compost. So that's kind of a big, big project. So um, we use a lot of bedding bales, um, like square bales that we put up into the loft and then kick down for them, kind of an open loafing area that kick bales down into for bedding and then feed the round bales in, in their feed section. So um, yeah, so that's kind of how we take care of them in the winter. And then in the summer, when they're out on, on, on pasture, that's the ideal time. Um, then we're just rotating them through all of our different kind of grazing areas and, and cutting hay. You know, if we can hold them off an area for a little while, we'll cut hay there. And we try to rotate where they're cutting that way when we go to mow for, for, for feed bales, especially if you can mow every pasture and take some kind of hay off it, then 
you know, the, everything gets kind of cut down. Yep. So yep. Yep. You know, when you run the cows through and they, and they don't eat everything just perfect, eventually, right. You know, if you want to mow behind them, cause there's a thistle there or a, an oddball weed there. And if you mow regularly and kind of, instead of, instead of brush hogging the whole field behind a herd, if you can hold them off for a few weeks and cut it for hay, then bring them back around through it, you know, after the, you know, anyway, I'm trying to like stack that, like, I'm going to mow anyway, I might as well make it a profitable mowing and, and yes. get, get hay out of it. So trying to get enough bedding bales and enough feed bales for the winter is always kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a challenge, but yeah. And is that all square bales? Um, so we do bedding bales as square because we have two lofts and it's uh -huh. just, the most efficient way to store the hay it's also like the hottest and sweatest you have to do hay at the hottest time of the year every year and that's <laughs> but yeah but we do a round bale that's covered in plastic so it's a technically haylage um yes. and i got a buddy who you know we were like in 4-h together as kids and then he went working in texas i think for working on the on the uh, on the oil rigs down there then he came back and got into farming in a big way so he bought a bunch of big equipment and they go round bale for us. We used to have our own round baler, but he is so much faster at it. And he's got huge equipment that can just knock out 20 fields, like nothing, you know, 20 acres, like nothing. So, um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it makes sense for that kind of to be specialized and, and having, having other people around to do kind of custom work is really nice when you can do it strategically. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking at the barn here that you have the cows in. I love that, how it's got the center aisle through down in it. Yeah. And is that like a, at the center platform there? Is that like, what do you do up there? Is that just for more storage? Oh, up high? Yeah, yeah that's a crow's nest. Okay. My dad built it because he wanted the place that he could frame up and live in. Now, that's a little weird. I don't think he's really <laughs> ever going to do that. Um, he put it in as kind of like a last minute, kind of like spur of decision. Like if we had yep. a flood, we'd live up there like Noah's Ark or something. We haven't Swiss really- Stanley Robinson. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Like he's steering the ship. He's going back to his old seafaring days. So, um, yeah, uh, that room, it's too much of a hassle to like walk up the stairs with hay bales and stack hay up there. So, um, we just, it just is a room. I don't know. Yeah. We don't do anything with it. it. It'd be cool. But, but you know, like it, uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's like, it's not the most comfortable place to hang out. Maybe we could have team meetings up there, but all winter yeah. walked in by hay. And then the summer, you know, uh, it's hot. hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I highly en encourage people to check out your Instagram feed because you guys have a lot of cool things you're doing there. And it's Jubilee underscore farm on Instagram. So make right. sure folks do check that out. Um, talk to us a little bit about because you said you talked to some other animals. You got the cows. You got the, what are the how are the other animals managed? Right. So we do we do pigs um, and, uh, you know, I, I did breeding for a while where a buddy and I down the road, we'd share a boar, kind of kick it back mm -hmm. and forth, <laughs> breed sows that way. Um, and uh, so I had a few, I had three sows, I think at one point, and um, I was trying to do a couple litters a year. And I just, I was having, it was, it was so hit and miss. Um, and uh, I want to build a, a better kind of farrowing system. And that doesn't necessarily mean like crating or anything, but I tried a lot of different ways and, you know, you got to be patient as a farmer, right? Cause you, it's not, if yes. it doesn't work the first time, that doesn't mean the system is flawed necessarily. It just means that 
you know, there could be good luck, bad luck, and then there could be like a slight tweak that needs to be made. Um, so I tried fairing outside all natural. Like I had a guy down the road tell me that's how he does it. And I, I tried it and, you know, and on a freak uh, rainstorm in September, you know, she's trying to give birth outside of her shelter. And I'm like, you know, building a tent over her, you know, so, yeah. you know I, I felt like, God, I'm not really doing it. So, or, or she would roll on half of them. And, you know, I felt, I was like, I, 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 it got, I can't stand that, that like when little piglets don't make it, it makes me sad. So, yeah. So, you know, um, uh, I, I, so I got rid of the sows and I've just been buying piglets, uh, at, at wiener pigs and, um, and taking them from there. Uh, if I can buy them locally, that's great. If not, I'll pick them up at the sale. Um, I'd prefer to farrow my own, but I, I think I need to make a dedicated effort. And right now I'm spread just a little too thin to do that. So, um, I'd love to, I'd love to focus on that, get something that is repeatable and, and kind of dependable and, and be able to do that. Cause I, I, you know, we, we have our own calves, uh, you know, we bring a bowl in and, and we do calving season and all that. So I would love to do that for pigs. We did that for sheep for a few years. Um, and then we kind of had problems like, uh, with the market on sheep, we just couldn't find, you know, uh, a reliable way to sell them, uh, for what they were worth. Let's put it that way. Like okay. people looking for a deal, but not always looking, you know, <laughs> to pay what, what was going into them as far as like grass fed rotated, you know, lamb would cost. So I wasn't quite sure how to deal with that. So I just kind of, uh, got rid of them. Um, and, and, uh, yeah. And then I, I, I buy a few lambs, like last year, I bought a few lambs just for my neighbor to, uh, to raise up and, and, and butcher at the end of the year. And that worked out pretty well. So yeah, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll get back into it. I'm trying to build another barn specifically for sheep. Um, we, uh, that parcel that my dad sold to our other neighbors, we bought back cause they moved back to the Midwest where they were from. So we ended up buying it back and there was an old barn site but the barn had collapsed 10 years ago and we'd love to rebuild where we're at in the floodplain. The County is fairly restrictive on what you can do. And just because there was a barn there before, doesn't mean you can rebuild it. So, you know, rules and regulations are constantly in flux. So trying to like build up infrastructure is kind of a challenge. That cow barn that we got built there was built because we had another barn there and it burned down when I was 15. And, um, and I don't know how my dad did it. He, he knew, yeah, I don't know. He got that new barn built and it was a lot bigger than the old one. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, building in a floodplain, right. comes with a lot of problems. They don't want you to build because you're going to displace water or it's a potential hazard, but you know, um, it, it got done. It was kind of a special occasion and, you know, probably spent a lot of time in meetings to get that thing done. I can imagine. Yeah. Especially the state you're in is really restrictive as well. Not only is like yeah. the floodplain, you've got a very restrictive state. Right. Yeah. You, I would love to build more like a house on the hill for, for, you know, uh, you, you know, cause we've got a parcel on the hill and it'd be nice to be out, you know, have a house out of the floodplain, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard. They don't, they don't uh, you know, they don't make it easy and I get it. You know, it's a populous County and sometimes, you know, farmers, like the situation isn't always fully understood. I mean, we got like Microsoft and, and Amazon and Boeing in our County and, and sometimes farmers get kind of for, forgotten a little bit. So, you know, yeah. but there's also real benefits by being, like I was saying earlier, benefits of being that close to a population center. So if that's our advantage, then there's also going to be some drawbacks and you got to, you can't, you know, you can't have, yeah. you can't have it both ways. Okay. So let's talk a little about that marketing because it sounds like you have most of the people come right to the farm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would do it all that way. I love that. I mean, delivery is fine too. I understand everybody can't make it out, but, um, you know, um, I think the big selling part is the local farm. You know, most of our clientele or uh, most of our customers are, are young families um, and they want to have their kids see where their food comes from and uh, kind of get that. They go out there. It's beautiful. You know, you got the mountains there and everything and and, uh, and kids can do you pick and see where their food's coming from. Make a day of it. We, you know, have a little playground and and benches out under trees. And, and I do yeah. farm school. Farm school is for kids in July and August, and I do it three times a week. And it's like a half hour activity where I'll load the kids up on a wagon and uh, we'll head out to uh, do a farm chore. So sometimes that's like digging potatoes or carrots or going to pick blackberries when they're in season or going out to the fields, the pastures to visit the cows. And so I do that. And, um, you know, and I, I usually tell people like, look, you, I don't take attendance. Show up when you want to. If you want to bring friends, that's fine. You don't have to be a CSA member. They also do gardens. So I'll take a little section of land and I'll, I'll spade it up and then I'll drive over it, you know, and make a little hex pattern on it. So they each get like a little five by five garden. And then I just take a bunch of starts and say, Hey, go nuts. You know, I used to like, this is how far apart you should plant everything. But I found like, Hey, just let them go. Just let them <laughs> okay. go. You pull them green side up, put the roots down, always dare, put it in deeper than you think you'll need to. And then I take care of the watering. And then I tell them their homework is making sure their garden's weed free. And if they don't want to be embarrassed, they got to go weed it. So because uh, <laughs> you know, I make them put name tags in their garden, it's, it's you know, yeah. they, a, lot of, a lot of families will end up getting a fair amount out of there. I mean, you know what a couple of summer squats oh, yeah. produce. And, oh, gosh, it's. Yeah. <laughs> so they end up having a good time with that. And that's, and I always tell parents, you know, like, Hey, you want your kid to eat chard, have them grow chard. I insist that everybody plants chard in their garden because you know, it, it's chard's a tough sell for little kids, especially. Um, you say, you know, it's not one that jumps out to kids as being a yummy one. So you grow it, you see it grow, you develop an emotional attachment to it. You're more likely to eat it. And so that's kind of the pitch. And, and in some ways, you know, I love kids getting that kind of experience. On the other hand, it's also kind of a marketing thing, you know, like yeah. it's a fun activity that parents can do with their kids in the summer when they're kind of looking for things to do. It's a no cost, no obligation kind of thing. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like, a you know, people hear about it and then they really dig in. So it really kind of captures a number of, a number of people that like to do that. Same thing kind of with the you pick, um, on top of like the idea of getting, uh, you know, uh, fresh produce weekly. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so then, as you said, people come out and you've just built that, that, that word of mouth, viral word of mouth in the area. And because you're so close to that population center, it sounds like you just fill up your CSA very easily. It, yeah. It's been that way more recently. You know, I, I, I chart our growth back to like a Seattle times article, like on a local scene, we were like the front page and, and they just did like a, a spread on our you pick pumpkins and vegetables and flowers and it and it kind of yep. they did a real nice spread with nice pictures and you know that's kind of a quaint way of doing things now but then it was a little bit more impactful and they also um you know it just that's when i kind of noted it historically like that's when things started kind of picking up um yeah. it's been kind of steady since then and we grew a lot you know um you know, starting about five years ago, we started seeing growth. We were around 200 to 250 members. And I think last year we were around 500. So yeah. we, had, we had good growth. And I mean, some of that's like a COVID bump because people were more interested in getting out 
side, like if they're going to, they're going to do something outside, you know, or, you know, the, when the COVID's going on and everything's canceled and going to a farm and doing you pick sounds like a pretty safe option. Um, yes. So some people were, were more interested in, you know, I tell people, you know, uh, CSAs aren't really cheap or convenient. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you, you know, so it's not for everybody. I always like to be upfront about that. Like, Hey, this isn't the cheapest way to buy your vegetables. This is the most convenient way, but in times of COVID and, and, you know, I think these habits will hopefully kind of stick around that people will realize that there is something else besides those two, you know, those two values are fine. There's nothing wrong with looking for a deal or looking for something that's easy, but there's other things like quality and then kind of like, um, more like a, almost like a spiritual level of appreciation that goes into things um, um, that, that that's also has a value. That's a little bit harder to quantify uh, in terms yes. of So in any case, you know, I, I'm hoping that this, this kind of trend of people being more interested in local food kind of continues um, obviously, but, <laughs> but you know um, yeah, it's, it's, it's grown for us. It's been pr pretty steady and we tend to, we tend to, you know, kind of hit the numbers that we're looking for. Obviously we can't just do as many people as would want to join because we, we are limited in our space and I don't want to outkick our coverage or anything, but yeah. So now you also have an on-farm store or is that like a pop-up shop? Yeah. So we have a, an old uh, barn uh, built in 1957. It was a dairy barn. Uh, one of the last ones kind of built of its time. It's that big white barn. And uh, so inside, we got about half of that kind of cordoned off as a farm market. And that's where we do our pickup for our CSA. So we, you know, we've got nice bins and racks laid out with all the vegetables. So people come and kind of select and we got a chalkboard written with, you know, uh, we got full three quarters and half shares and people go through and pick their things. And then we usually have some value added items. Like we, there's a cannery nearby. So we do like jam and, and pickled beets, pickles and uh yeah, pumpkin butter is a big one because our October pumpkin. So you know, we do we do have some value added items and uh, you know local artisans. If if somebody you know make you know a few like potters and artists and that kind of thing. My wife's an artist, so she takes care of all that. She knows oh, very she cool a good community for that. So it's kind of a place that we want it to look you know almost you know have that kind of country mercantile kind of feel to it. Um, so yeah, it's it's it makes it a nice kind of. Uh, pleasant place. Also key popsicles. Um, I don't want to make fights with you know, parents and kids and stuff. So we try to get the, the healthier ones, but you know, uh, popsicles are always a nice treat. And when we had that heat wave for farm school, I, yep. uh, I, I gave everybody a popsicle and we went and saw the new, uh, the new cooler that we had gotten set up. We got bought a big, uh, uh, uh yep. Walk in. insulated, uh, shipping containers and, and hooked it up to a cool bot. And so I showed the kids, I was like, Hey, on hot days, this is good stuff to do too. So, I mean, you can't just be out digging potatoes in 110 degrees. So no, no. And yeah, it's almost in that weather you've got, you know, cooked potatoes right in the soil. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about management because you got a lot going on. How do you structure your team to make sure that everything gets covered? That's a great question. So, um, I've mentioned uh, Liz before. Liz is our CSA manager. And uh -huh. so kind of takes care of the paperwork side of things of making sure everybody's signed up, that people show up on the correct days. Um, we harvest a couple days a week. And um, so pickups are, uh, let's see, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday. We do deliveries on Wednesday. Um, so, you know, she kind of makes sure that everybody shows up at the right time, expecting the right thing. Harvest is... Usually we'll, we'll have somebody from the crew kind of take on the harvest manager job. So, 
Um, if they feel pretty confident, they'll make their own harvest list of what's available. If they aren't feeling as confident, I'll make the list. Um, I don't mind doing the harvest managing. Um, you know, sometimes I'll do it if we don't have a person or, or if someone's got to take a day off or something. So it's pretty flexible. So usually that get, you know, like we'll make a list, we'll email out the harvest list amongst all the, all the crew and say, here's what we're going to do. And I'll usually email out like a task list for the week. And, and, and if I'm really on ball on the ball, I'll have it on the whiteboard too. Uh, and then we, you know, we meet in the morning and, 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 and hit it pretty fast. I don't, we don't have a lot of meetings, uh, my dad had zero meetings, so I feel pretty good about doing like a little bit more talking. Yeah. We try to do like uh, like seasonal meetings where like we'll sit down for a couple hours with, you know, with 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 coffee and, and talk about like we have a pivot to spring meeting and a pivot to summer, a pivot to fall, a pivot to winter. So like as the season changes different kinds of bigger projects or different kinds of focuses are happening. So, you know, we aren't really focused on weeding or transplanting in the fall, but we are in the spring and summer. So, you know, we kind of talk about how it's going to look, how it's going to feel, field employees questions at that time. And, you know, I usually, you know, chat at the beginning of each day. Um, and sometimes also in the afternoon, we kind of have two shifts, uh, morning and afternoon shifts, four hours a piece. And, um, yeah, so some of it is just, you know, I keep a, a, a list every week of what needs to be done. And then we kind of work that out with a crew lead to make sure that, that happens. And hopefully, you know, um, you know, that that we catch everything. And sometimes, you know, you got something on your list. You don't quite get to it. You don't quite get to it. And then pretty soon, well, it's too late to get to it. Forget it. <laughs> yes. it. One way or another, the list gets completed. It's just not always done to the way you want it. Yes. Yeah. You can say weed onions, weed onions, weed onions. And if you don't weed those onions, pretty soon it's like, well, forget the onions. They're done. You know, that, yes. forget the we ain't going to get them now. We got to just go for, you know, leave them behind. Otherwise, if we spend doing what we call combat weeding in a really weedy area, you're going to miss all this other stuff that's going to fall behind as well. So, you know, um, and then, you know, obviously the, the crew that crew members that have been around for a while, you know, they, they, they keep me honest as, and, and don't let me forget about things that are important. So um, you know, I, I try to keep my eyes open and all that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a group effort. Yes. Yeah. That, so that let's answer, say that kind of all over the map there, but no, that was good. Now. So let's say like cultivation, is that something that you do? Do you have a, a team member that's dedicated to that? Okay. Yeah. So like there's a, you know, we got the mechanical side of cultivation. Um, yep. I love cultivating and I love using sweeps because there's something mesmerizing about watching the dirt flow underneath the little bar. Oh, it's just, I love it. Yes. Like, yep. Yep. Like, almost like hilling potatoes. I just love watching dirt, dirt cascade like that. So there's, um, there's, uh, there's some, you know, I generally do most of the cultivation or some, some years I'll pass it off to somebody else. Um, and, uh, kind of depends how well the tractor's working. So like yep. we had real loose steering there in our tractor. So I was doing it for, <laughs> for a while until, um, until we could get it fixed. Um, so yeah, usually I found that like, if you try to split up the tractor mechanical cultivation side of it, there's a lot of, did you get this covered or do I need to do it? You know, like you got, you dedicate one person to it and then they know, and then you got to kind of trust that person say, Hey, yeah. go out. Here's what I want you to cultivate. If you see anything else, why you got the one rower on, go hit it. You know, like if you got it yes. on, don't hesitate. Yeah. If you can't see weeds, it doesn't mean they aren't there. I know you just did that 10 days ago, hit it again. Um, yeah. so kind of, you know, training a person, getting them feeling confident. I've been told, and I don't know if other farmers say this, but if, you know, during the process of cultivation, you might, you, you know, it, you might kill 10% of your plants. 
Um, yep. And that might, you know, that might include it like hand weeding and that time when you, uh, you know, get attacked by a bee and you kill 20 plants in one whack uh, because you swerve and you're like, ah, you know, but I, I try to encourage people, you know, be aggressive. Speed is part of cultivation. If you're crawling along and not going very fast, maybe you never hit a plant, but those weeds aren't very disrupted. And yes. um, so I found one person doing the cultivating generally works best. And then they get a more of a chance to get a real feel for it. And you learn like, you know, how, how to best approach problems. Um, we've got a whole bunch of different sets of toolbars for different situations. We have a we have an international 274 kind of offset. It's a high, high uh, tractor. And I love that tractor. I wish they had made a whole lot more of them. Um, mm-hmm. but in any case, uh, it works pretty well. Uh, and uh, I just bought a, a three row multivator. To okay. kind of, so to kind of, cause I'm worried about our international breaking down in the middle of the season and us being kind of, you know, without an option. So this one would fit on the back of one of our standard uh, John Deere tractors that we use. We have a few different John Deere's that all have like that 60 inch wheelbase. So they're kind of interchangeable. Um, so you could run that off it and then you could still kind of do some weed control with a tractor that certainly was not intended to be a row crop kind of tractor. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of that side of it. And then there's a lot of hand weeding, like, like any farm that doesn't use chemicals. I mean, we're not technically organic. We used to be, we're not certified, but we yeah. still use all the same things because we're, because we have a CSA, uh, we sell all direct to our customers. We didn't really, you know, my dad wasn't really that much better at paperwork than I am and I'm terrible. So, um, you know, keeping, keeping track and records and all that stuff was never my strong point. So, it's nice to have a trusting relationship. And, and so being honest, upfront, transparent, and, 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 you know, like everybody picks up on our farm, they know, they know what we're doing, you know, like, so that kind of trust is, that's invaluable to me. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of hand weeding. So, you know, trying to make sure that things are cultivated timely so that the weeding crew, when you're going through, they're moving forward momentum. The worst thing in the world is to see somebody cross-legged in the field weeding because you know either you didn't do a good job cultivating or you know they're not doing forward momentum you got to think that 80 20 rule like don't try to get it perfect because if you yeah get it, you're spending too much time that you know 20 percent of your energy going into that last little one percent of weeds forget it keep moving so you know getting that kind of uh, aggressive mentality into a weed crew because a lot of times people they want to do a really good job you know, they're like, oh, you know, my boss or, you know, David wants a, you know, I want I want him to be happy with my work. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, so they want to do a really good job. So teaching people to kind of find that medium where like they're getting the job done good enough. Um, so don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Now, mm-hmm. I, I, I go to a fault on that because I've always been a get it done kind of guy. Like when I was 10 and I was doing homework, it'd be the bare minimum so I could be done. Just like yes. Explain why John is this character. You'd be, I'd be like, John is fast, done. Oh my goodness, that was so much work. You know, I was I'm really like a completionist when it comes down to it. And, and so it's nice, um, you know, to kind of push people that way, but also realize that I might err too much on that side. So give them yeah. the kind of new way to, you know, realize that maybe I'm, I'm not being, you know, that my way isn't the only way. Absolutely. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and bringing on, it sounds like you're bringing on a really good, uh, like managerial or second tier team, which can really kind of fill in some of those, those, those areas. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, that's my, that's my hope is that each year when we bring on new people, I'm looking for people that, you know, usually I can find one or sometimes two 
that are willing to stay on another year. So I often tell employees like I, you know, working as a field hand, you know, doing the, the, the primary job of transplanting, weeding and harvesting. It's, it's a tough job to do year and year, year after year after year. So our job, you know, the, the farm is kind of a way station for most of our employees. They're, you know, they're between schools, they got done with school, they got a summer, they want to spend it outside, they're tired of working in a coffee stand, you know, they're tired of doing something else and they want to get outside, you know, or they maybe they took you know, um, environmental science in college and they kind of want to get a feel for what it's like to produce food or they're an egg program. And um, so a lot of times where we're they're kind of their first job and some people end up liking it quite a bit and they want to stick around. So I always look for people that are in the life situation where they can do it. They have yes. the desire to do it. They seem to be kind of figuring it out. And then if you can hold on to them for another year or two, um, you know, they can be very invaluable to you uh, out in the field because you can't be everywhere at once. Like if I'm trying to stay ahead of the planting crew by you know, prepping fields and getting beds set for them to come by and plant or weed or whatever, um, then I can't also be with them at the same time. So, yeah. you know, you got to give them good instructions. And fortunately, cell phones make things a lot easier. I can look across a field and tell when a, when a crew's confused, you know, yes. <laughs> start yeah. calling. Say, okay, here, I see, yeah. I see you guys run into a, a problem, but having, having leads, you know, people that have been there before, it just, they know the language, they know they got an idea of what I want already, and they know how to solve the problem. And they, and, they, and that's just, I, I, I try to give a lot of space for them to, to problem solve and, 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 and do it. Cause if you try yeah. to be there for every step of the way, you're going to drive yourself crazy. And, and I like to, I like to do a lot of the labor side of it. Managing is not my, it's not my, it doesn't thrill me. So, um, yeah. So you enjoy doing the work and then letting a building a good team that can actually do some of the management of other people. I hope so. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. and it, it, works, it works to varying degrees of success. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people will make decisions and how they do things that it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but again, I've seen farming done so many different ways, you know, growing up and seeing my dad, you know, we plant, we've, we've done tomatoes in greenhouses for 25 years and um or even longer than that now and and we've planted them when they are 18 inches tall and dug big holes for them we planted them laying on their sides when they're little you know we, there's a lot of different ways to do it um so i always try to remind people plants do like 99% of the work they're they're trying to survive we're yeah giving, we're giving, we're trying to set the tone for them and also i found that if somebody's doing a job the way they want to do it they'll work harder at making it successful if you tell them how to do it and they don't like it and it's not working for them, they're going to grind down and get slower. But if you're like, oh, I really want to, you know, do it this way or, you know, whatever the project is and it's not going so well, they'll put twice the effort in just to make sure it happens because it's the way they want to lay out the weed fabric or it's, you know, yeah. and I don't, you know, I don't want to give like, well, it's here's weed fabric, figure it out. You know, not like that, but like, you know, anyway. So yeah. a little bit of freedom is probably a good thing. Too much freedom is probably a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the uh, spring plant sale you guys do. You have this thing called like a victory garden tray. <laughs> what, what, tell me about that. Yeah, that's fun. Um, yeah. So that started with, with COVID. We'd always kind of done a plant sale on our May Day. We did a May yep. Day celebration first Saturday of May. And we do a maypole where the CSA families would come out and their kids would walk around a maypole. It sounds charming. What it is is flagging tape around a post in the middle of this field. Okay. <laughs> and yep. They wrap that thing up and it stays colorful all year. Um, 
there's some real country fun is like we do like sometimes we do like a, a pig roast and then we grease that pole and try to get kids to climb up to the top so serve many purposes um and uh yeah so the uh the maypole we do the maypole and then we'd sell like starts and stuff that we had left over like oh we we always have extra like you know a few extra yeah. tomato plants like let's let people buy them because always people want them or we're just going to end up having to toss them at some point because we usually have too many not always yeah. um and then when covid hit we were like hey you know i don't feel like we could probably do you know the may day you know because you know 2020 everybody remembers there was a lot of uncertainty so um so we didn't do May Day, but we did Victory Gardens instead. So the idea was, you know, kind of that throwback to World War II. Hey, we're all in this together. Let's grow some food, that kind of thing in our backyards. So we, we did those trays, you know, we do soil blocking. So I don't know how many soil blocks we fit in there. We usually throw a few extra, like, I don't know why that 20, 20 blocker doesn't fit. Yes. I'd love to get something that fits that 1020 tray just a little better. You can get the little blocks that do, but I like the little bit bigger blocks anyway. Yeah. We yeah, pack yeah. Up like 75 starts in a tray and we do like, you know, seven kale, seven collar, you know, like do like vegetables, but enough that you're, it's not just like, it's not no vegetables. It'd be like, Hey, if you got a, if you got a little bit of space in your backyard or a few raised beds, you could, you could, I mean, kale's a great producer. Um, it, it keeps giving. So we did victory garden trays, what we call them. We try to do like a meaningful amount of each kind of vegetable start. And then I can't remember what we charge for them, but we just, we did self-serve, you know, put them out on wagons and let people come and pick them up. And they sold pretty well. And we did them last year. We'll do them again this year. I mean, obviously yeah. the, the panic of, of, of not wanting to go to a grocery store or worried about, you know, st you know, starving or something is kind of gone, which is good. I don't want people being unnecessarily yeah. filled with anxiety just because it sells trays. But, um, you know, it's something that I think people did a lot of. They wanted to do something with their kids outside that was meaningful. You know, people mm -hmm. kind of, what do we do in this situation? I don't know. Let's grow our own food. That seems like a good solution. That's a great solution. It, it, yeah. it certainly functions psychologically for people and, and health wise. And yeah, it's just, it's just a great, it was a great thing. And I think we'll keep doing it as long as people want to buy them. All right. So with that too, you do all your plants with soil blocks. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, we direct seed a fair amount, right? So we direct seed yeah. like and corn and all that. But yeah, we, we do hunt. I don't know how many, but it's over a hundred thousand soil blocks. And um, so you just have somebody making soil blocks for yeah, hours. I like to do it. And I like to, I like to do it. And um, I'm trying to do more of it this year. Every year I tell the crew, I'm going to be more involved this year. And then I end up being less involved than ever before. Cause I'm off doing something else. I'm not just, yeah. I, I'll tell them I'm napping in the, in the crow's nest, right up in the cow barn. <laughs> uh, you know, I come back, you know, like pretending to yeah. yawn. But, um, yeah. So, uh, but you know, I, I like, I like soil blocking. Um, I accidentally ordered the wrong soil blocker, but uh, so I ended up with like a <laughs> the wrong size, but we have the old one. It's still working. Okay. I just want to have a backup. And sometimes you need two people blocking. And we used to do the 72s. And uh, what I found is, you know, like you end up wasting a lot of soil. It seems like, um, because wait, why is that? I don't remember why. Anyway, we get better germination. It seems like maybe, and, um, but also more importantly, um, when you go to plant, like you're ready to go, you just rip them out. And like, they're so much faster. It, we spent, it seems like planting days were always days that like in Washington, our window was small because it'd be like, Hey, we got 24 hours, but there's no rain in May. Let's go out and plant. 
And yeah. you don't want to kind of like loosening the plants, popping the plants out of the 72s, because a lot of times they wouldn't just come out easily. So we'd spend a little time prepping. So soil blocking tends to happen mostly when we, you know, on rainy days. So if it takes a little more time there and saves us time on the other end, it kind of makes sense. Um, you know, there's also the value of like air pruning and, you know, other things like that, that can, you know, some people swear by that they, they do better in the field. They, there's not as much transplant shock. I can't verify that. Honestly, I'd love to say that my management decision to switch to soil blocking, you know, is just better on all fronts. Uh, I think it's better on some fronts and enough that I'm not going to go back to 72s. I think I gave them away. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, 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 I always said the best brassica transplants we ever grew came from a soil block. I just feel like they hit the ground and they explode right out of there. Um, that's I, I, and that's what I'm hopeful for every year. And it kind of depends yeah. on, you know, the weather that ends up happening post planting and that kind of thing. But yeah, you know, I, I, I held on to all our 72 trays uh, in the meantime, and we didn't use them after a couple of years. And so I was like, Hey, if we're not using them, then let's get rid of them. So I, we kind of made the commitment to do that. And I think we probably got a, still like a hundred or so laying around somewhere, but for the most part, yeah, we're just, we're just on the soil blocking. And, and, uh, so far that's worked out well for us. It finding the right soil mix is important because, you know, when we had, a, there was some supply chain issues last year and I couldn't get the normal soil stuff that we usually get from a local, uh, supplier. And she was all backed up and couldn't get peat moss delivered and all kinds of stuff. So I went to, you know, buy a bag somewhere else. And then the consistency was different. It was a lot coarser. It didn't, you know, the soil blocks weren't yeah. you know, tight. You know, you want a good soil block. Otherwise they're falling apart on you and you're trying to seed. And anyway, um, so yeah, I haven't, you know, it's, the system has to work. It's maybe a little bit more demanding for the soil blocking, but yeah, it, it seems to work. Okay. Very cool. What would you go back and do differently if you could, when you first started farming? Oh man. Yeah. So when I moved back home, um, from the big city, uh, I, uh, let's see, I was about 11 years ago now. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I do exactly different. We, we, we spread our compost or have in the past in, in the fall, more like September. And that's probably not as good, not as beneficial. We're going to start spreading it in the spring. It's just that we're okay. so crunched for time in the spring. I think we'll get, I think we'll see a lot more. I think we lose a lot of nitrogen. This is what a soil compost expert guy was telling me on a zoom call this winter. And I was saying, you know, we usually spread it in the fall and he was like, well, you're going to lose a lot of nitrogen that way. Um, so we put a lot of compost out, like I say, with all the cows and their bedding and their waste, you know, for yeah. seven, you know, 50, 60, 70 animals make a lot. So we get hundreds of tons of it. We put it out on the fields, And so anyway, maybe, maybe doing that in the spring, if we could have been doing that this whole time would have been a good thing to do, you know, but yeah, yeah, you can't, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, so we always did it, we did it in September because we weren't weeding. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The ground was firm enough because it's heavy. So in the spring when it's wet, you don't want to pull something that's, you know, many tons over the ground and compact it also. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We get a lot of our organic matter as uh, shredded leaves in the fall. So we really can't, I mean, we can spread it on, we spread it on garlic and onions and such down between the plastic rows, but um, you really can't spread it right. Away. Well, we could spread it right away until then, I guess, but it's just, it kind of breaks down over the spring. So yeah, it's uh. but then we also buy in boatloads of compost because, and peat moss, we're buying like six pallets of peat moss a year. And we put that out. We put that mostly in tunnels. Um, 
but we're on a super sandy soil, so we can't get enough organic matter. We just can't get enough. Yeah, we got one field that's very close to the river. We're we have you know our farms all along a river, so like uh-huh. I said, and, um, you got one section that's very sandy. The closer you get to the river, the sandier it gets. So yeah, we got you know I yeah that's a whole separate battle down in that field. So so you also run your cows right through your vegetable fields. Sometimes we do. Yeah. So it kind of depends. It really depends on weather. Right. So the ground's got to be firm enough. Um, yep. To let the cows out. Cause if it's the ground's still wet and they're running around, they're just going to pug everything. And uh, you know, it's just not going to be good. So if we get them out, we'll run them through some selective fields. It kind of depends on timing, like how soon are we going to get it? But if you've got some weeds growing up, we do have a fairly mild climate. So you get a little bit of weed and grass growth in the winter, you know, our cover crops or whatever will also be there. So if we're doing like a rye grass or a uh-huh. or, or whatever, um, or sometimes just a little bounce back on the buckwheat. Though cows don't really like to eat buckwheat. At least ours aren't. Maybe they're just picky. I don't know. But huh. um, maybe maybe it's just when they're mature, but maybe they'll eat it when they're when it's little. But so sometimes we'll run the cows through and then they can kind of clean up the field. Uh, so you don't have to mow it when you go to plow or disc it in. So yeah. some of the timing, you know, with, with FISMA regulations and so forth, keeping cows and plants separate, they're pretty insistent on that. They are, we did, yeah. We did a little trial where I they did a, a FISMA a Food and Safety Modernization Act training session where they trained observers or or whatever on our farm. So like 30 or 40 of them went around our farm. And I did, yeah, uh, but they, you know, I, it, you know, I wasn't really nervous or anything. Cause I was like, wait, you know, we've never, no one's ever gotten sick here and I'm pretty careful yeah. about that sort of thing. And they didn't really have any corrections, which was nice. And they, you know, they, I was able to ask them like, did we pass? And they're like, well, technically we can't tell you. And, it wasn't <laughs> yes. and I was like, yeah, but did we pass? And they're like, yeah, you did fine. I'm like, okay, good. I mean, like, don't, don't hold out on me, man. Like, yeah. if I'm wrong tell me but you know for the most part you know things are fine they're mostly concerned about animals and water and that sort of thing and so having a good uh safety mitigation plan for keeping animals separate from uh from plants is a good thing because um you know cows do get out but if you if you can minimize that and make it an, a very irregular thing then and and you know and, and have a way to deal with it and yeah yeah Well, it's interesting because I actually been a train, the trainer for, um, the FISMA and, uh, back in my old, yeah, back between I was, when I was farming and then we started the education company for a year, I was on a a really big FISMA project and we were looking at software and all this other stuff. But, um, it's really interesting how the rules have changed. And, and again, I could be completely wrong on this. But I thought I saw a statistic that basically said, yeah, we implemented this FISMA, but still the same amount of people get sick every year. And it was one of those things like at the beginning, they're like, oh, no wood on any farm. And like, what is the worst? And again, now we're saying, well, as long as you manage wood correctly, it's fine. Because I think the FDA did some trials with actually a cheese production facility, which uses wooden vats. And they were like, oh my gosh, the wooden vat is going to harbor all this bacteria. But what they found is you've got, you know, it's the microbiome down in there. You got the good bacteria and the bad bacteria. And so they fight and actually a system that has good bacteria is actually better than a sterile moonscape. (laughs) Well, that makes sense because that's our bacteria. So, I mean, like a sterile moonscape isn't more conducive to humanity than that. Well, obviously it's not, it's the moon who lives on the moon. Nobody. So exactly. Yes. 
Uh, some of us conspiracy theorists would love to think there's some secret base on the backside, but. <laughs> you tell me about that later. I'd, I'd love to. I'm up for whatever. <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, and again, I don't want to put things out there. I just want to say, you know, there are more things to think about than sometimes that, that the, the science is changing, I guess I would like to say, is that there's not one set Simon Stone. Um, and like, it was just, it's fluid. Again, let's be respectful, but you look at animals interacting with crops and it just seems like that's the right way that it should be. Animals can come through, clean up, you till it under, let a freeze happen, let some, and then, you know, you can grow the next crop. Um, and again, keep those, those time frames and stuff, but yeah. yeah. Time, time is important. And I, what was it? Sir Albert Howard talked about like nature. You never see plants divorced from animals or vice yes. versa. It's very rare. I mean, maybe he never seen penguins or something. They don't seem to have plants around them on the ice floes. But but for the most part, you know, yeah, uh, yeah uh, plants and animals kind of go together. That's one of the things that we kind of are big on here with the whole farm organism is like, hey, I mean, you, you take a look like uh, all this uh, all this waste that cows produce, you know, that big compost pile that we gather from all the grass and all the hay and, you know, all the animal waste that we gather becomes all these other crops. So like one feeds the other. Um, yes. Yeah. You don't want, you don't want like chickens, you know, in the arugula. Um, yes. Yep. That's too risky, right? You got to yes. keep something separate. I think our natural kind of disgust kicks in and we would say, oh yeah, that, that's not good. A anybody yeah. would, say that. nobody would be like, that's fine. It's nature. Um, yeah. right. so there, you know, there, there does require, I mean, farming isn't just a free for all. There is some stewardship involved. So yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want to smell the chickens while you're eating your arugula salad. That's no, that's a, but you don't want to smell chickens while you're eating chickens either. I mean, both <laughs> yes. can play into each other. You want yeah. To, well, yeah. you know, it's interesting though, because I like I'm looking at the size of your farm and it's really interesting to see all the animals and because the crops look great. And obviously with your crops looking good, that means that you've got significant fertility. And so that I think that's directly coming from your animal programs and that 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 range and such. Yeah. And that's, you know, like you were talking about how the science is changing and soil fertility seems like the science is changing. You know, there's a lot of tests. Oh, yeah. You like that. Here's what's in your soil, but what's in your soil isn't the whole story. I think we all know that, that like the, you know, uh, microbial activity in the soil matters so much to mm -hmm. whether it's accessible. And I, you know, when I tell people, and I feel this might be a little redundant for, for you and, and, and all the listeners, but, um, you know, like I tell people, uh, if an alien like abducted you and wanted to feed you and they were like, what do they eat? They eat beef. And they gave you a cow. You'd be like, I'm great, but I can't eat it. You know, yeah. like you got to butcher it. You got to, you know, grind it. You got to cook it. Now I can eat it. You know, like this is plants are the same way. You just give them nitrogen. They might just be like, I, I don't know what to do with it. So yeah. it's got to be process for them. And our, our stomachs process food for us that are full of you know, flora that, you know, like our biomes that, that are totally independent of us help process in the same way with plants. So I tell people the soil is a stomach, you know, it's got to, it's got to digest all that stuff for the plant. So you need healthy bacteria in there. Otherwise yeah. you're putting stuff on there and um, you know, it, it just because it's there doesn't mean it's necessarily in eating form if plants are, you know, eating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A couple so of weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed the, the folks from AgriGrow and they started their soil prebiotic company 40 years ago. And they said back then everyone thought it was snake oil because obviously back then we didn't understand any of this. 
And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting as the years have progressed, the more and more of what, the, what they're actually doing, people are like, oh yeah, now we understand it. Now we're actually willing to apply it, but it was working from the beginning. So. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting, you know, how far science has come and how far it still needs to go to understand really basic things like how food is produced. You know, oh, like yeah. there's, there's, there's kind of an illusion with like this smartphone that I could have never dreamed of as a kid that I'm doing this, this call on. Yes. Um, but the progression of technology doesn't necessarily mean a progression of all understanding. And that soil is, is way more complicated than maybe we originally thought. But, but, but people that were close to the land over thousands of years understood, I think, on a kind of uh, intuitive level or like an inductive level, much more than in a, in a reductive way. So we might mm. want to understand reductively, but understanding something inductively like, hey, I've noticed that when we do this, this thing happens. And I don't understand what's going on at a cellular level because I don't know what a cell is, but I do understand that this thing works. And so like when you get like some of the biodynamic farmers and kind of some of uh -huh. the absolutely uh, folk wisdom around how to develop fertility, it might sound a little outlandish and non-scientific, but it is kind of developed through kind of um, observation. And, you know, some of it might be a little bit, you know, uh, yeah, necessarily as functional as as they might have hoped, but they're yeah that 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 soil science is complicated and and people have been growing food for a long time so um you know observation is important. Well, I think yeah, observation and listening to the elders. I mean, look at a lot, so much of the indigenous wisdom that we have been passed down from generation to generation, um, and just seeing that I think is so important. Um, yeah, and not to, not to get too far in the weeds, I, I kind of like history um, and just kind of the mass exodus off of rural lands over the last hundred years um, and losing kind of that 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 natural wisdom and, and then going back and, and finding farm equipment from the 40s and 50s and being like, this is the scale that we need, but nobody yes. knows how to work it or fix it. Like we got to like, you know, go back and relearn, you know, it's the same thing with like people nowadays, like you know, you see like um, uh, social media kind of life influencers that are like, I'm picking up canning. And you're like, our grandparents <laughs> do this with, with, with no sense of like grandiosity, you know, like there's something yes. they just do. But now it's like a, it's like a cultural skill that we have to rediscover. And we learned a lot of other things in the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, about, about technology and, and all kinds of other things. But we lost a few other things too, that we're now realizing, hey, maybe we shouldn't have given that up. Maybe yeah. candy we shouldn't have given up for the, for the favor of TV dinners. Maybe TV dinners were kind of fun. Yeah. But maybe we should go back to trying to, you know, eat a little bit, you know, more, more like we used to. Well, I think you're absolutely onto something. Like the thing about canning is like, yeah, we have a lot of stuff in the freezer, but when you lose power, you're in a lot of trouble back in the day. I mean, like, again, a big windstorm came through. Okay. The tree fell down or something happened, but you didn't think, you didn't think I'm not going to have dinner for the next two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, not to, not to be all like Jeremiah, you know, about how great things were a long time ago. I mean, yeah. progress, you know, life, life moves on and we shouldn't, you know, try to go back and recreate the 19th century or anything, but, but there were a number of things that people did and kind of understood intuitively that small farms that featured animals and plants together and that manure fed one and, and that we should, you know, that's a system. I think it was Wendell Berry who said, you know, like uh, industrial egg took a good solution and made two problems. So yes, you know, yeah. That we a lot. I mean, he's every page is a quote with that guy. So like, you know, but, um, <laughs> he, he's a he's a smart guy. But like, you know, the um, that yeah, there's a lot of things to be said. I, that's why I'm such a big fan of the mixed farm. I think it's a great thing, and I understand not everybody's got the opportunity to do it. If you got small yeah. acres, 
it's really hard to kind of like keep cows. You know, they take space and time and infrastructure and capital and all that. So, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position, you know, being second generation, you say, oh, look at all these things you're doing. It's like, man, I didn't start all this. I'm just kind of carrying it forward. My dad, yeah. was very, you know, was a pioneer. I'm more of a settler. So he, he tried a lot of different things and I'm just trying to like, you know, you know, now kind of like get systems around them, build them up, kind of make sure that what what's good and what makes sense is is standing strong and 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 yeah, kind of maintain and and fix and repair and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, that was kind of what drove me in 2012 to go and intern at Polyface because I really was looking at you know how were they doing the animals? They obviously didn't do a lot of vegetables. We did a ton of vegetables. How do I integrate the animals? And basically, it was like you've got to be a farm at your scale. I mean, it's much smaller. It can. But when you really scale like you guys have, that's what makes it really start to work a lot, lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's I mean, then that you got the whole question of scale and how that works. Like, where's that sweet spot where like you have the right size of equipment for the right size of job and you're in the right amount of debt, you know? Like, yeah. Maybe someone would say no debt, but you know, like, I'm not adverse to a little debt. So um, but, you know, like having having, you know, the right right scale, how much food are you producing on how many acres? And what are your inputs and outputs and like trying to find that spot where you're like, you're not running around with your hair on fire, but you're also not like, you know, making systems overly complicated for the sake of, you know, I don't know, like perfection, I guess. Like you need to, you need to keep that kind of production mindset. So like, I, you know, I tell people, usually I think about half the seeds we plant get eaten. So like if you plant broccoli, like you're going to lose some because I get distracted on the cultivator. Some aren't going to germinate, you know, some are going to get infested by bugs. Some are going to get dropped off the wagon when we go, hopefully not very many. And then, you know, you, you get, you go down the line and, and, and that like, you understand like production, you're, you're not focused on each and every little plant, but you're trying to think how much food can we produce off this area at a given time. So, um, and then the waste, like, you know, we have people, you know, when they're working and they're picking kale, I tell them, you know, if it's, if, if it's buggy, pick, think of somebody slightly pickier than you and then throw it on the ground. And it's not wasted, you know, like it'll, it'll go back into the ground. That's, that's fine. That's kind of part of it. So nature, I don't think nature doesn't really waste things. So, um, and I know that's like, you know, I know that's hard, you know, like, like, you know, when you think about burning fossil fuels, you know, doesn't that seem kind of like a waste that's, and I'm not trying to be like, nature is perfect and nothing is, nothing's wrong. Everything's great. Um, <laughs> but, but just think that like, Hey, you know, um, you know, a little bit of slop in the system isn't the thing to be feared. I I'm very comfortable in that zone, but that's also just kind of a personality thing for me. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not terribly organized. Um, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't know how to use Excel. Um, I, I have a smartphone, um, <laughs> but yeah. I don't do the, like the bookkeeping stuff and things. I'm mostly, I just, I just do the kind of the farm work of it and make sure that the tasks that need to be done are done at a timely way. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I don't want to keep you too much longer because we could go down for another hour of this more phil- yeah. philosophical side of things, but, um, Hey, I appreciate your time today. This was fascinating. This is these type of interviews I love where we start to, you know, we get into the nitty-gritty, but then we back out and start hitting the 30,000 foot view and start thinking about the philosophy and the psychology and just the real like what's it going to take to move the farming movement forward slash, yeah. you know, how do we get there? So I love chatting with uh, you know, this kind of uh thinking. So thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate your time and really can't wait to share this with our, our audience here. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. 
This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.